Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. I am Jenna Lindblad. And I'm Sean Furmage. Today we'll hear the keynote speech that Anna Singh gave at the 2015 Biennial Conference of the Finnish Anthropological Society last October. Jenny, you were at the conference. What brought you there? I was intrigued by the theme of the conference, landscape, sociology and materiality. In particular, landscape is a term that I encounter in discussions with my colleagues who are in urban planning studies, and it is also often mentioned in my own research among urban planning practitioners in a city administration. Encountering this notion in these two different settings, I've been thinking about how to make sense of it when exploring planning practices that are about shaping space. Anat Singh proposes that anthropologists can engage with landscapes as a research object and that doing this is one way of bridging different ways of perceiving the environment across disciplines and professions. Beyond that, the speech addresses issues that are central to our contemporary world, such as environmental concerns and climate change, that are all the more commonly dealt with in relation to what is called the Anthropocene. Jean, what got you interested in this? So I'm really interested in this idea of the Anthropocene, a term which Paul Crutzen and Eugene Stormer promoted back in 2000 as a more formal term to describe how human activities have profoundly changed the Earth's climate. Geologists are actually working on a proposal to adopt the Anthropocene as a formal term for this new geological era. Scholars across a range of disciplines have enthusiastically taken up the term to engage with a central problem, recognizing humans as the primary drivers of world-altering climate and environmental change, but at the same time needing to move beyond human-centered perspectives to grasp our complex entanglements with the non-human world. Was there a particular idea in Singh's talk that resonated with you, Jenny? I found interesting the way she uses the notion of weeds, often in daily speech used to refer to those plants that we as humans want to get rid of from our gardens. As an analytical term, it is used as a way to focus attention on elements in a landscape that we might not particularly appreciate. Through weeds and weediness, Singh highlights how landscapes are transformed by various elements, such as plants, animals, rocks, humans, that come together and go apart in changing configurations that make up landscape. And this is something that Singh has written about previously. Anna Singh has been at the forefront of work challenging human-centered perspectives since her thinking about global connections in her book, Friction. You can find some of Anna Singh's most recent work in her book, The Mushroom at the End of the World, on the Possibility of Life in Capitalist Ruins, published by Princeton University Press in 2015. Okay, so let's take a listen to Singh's talk. Thank you so much, and it's a real pleasure and an honor to get to address you today. I was especially excited to come to this conference because of the theme, landscape, and I'm very much looking forward to the panels. Landscape is an exciting object of analysis for anthropologists for many intertwined reasons, and I'll get to a few of them later. For the moment, let me start with just one. A landscape angle makes new kinds of collaborations possible across the divide between social and natural science, and these are urgent to know in a human messed up world. Exploring such collaboration is one of the goals of the program I co-direct in Denmark, Aarhus University Research on the Anthropocene, or AURA. We have a joint research site in central Jutland, a former brown coal mine, and we play together across disciplines to explore that weedy landscape. In this talk, I make my own first rather tentative foray into discussing this site and very much informed by the whole team's continuing research. The gift for you is that this is rough thoughts in process, and of course, that's the terrible danger too. I look forward to your comments and your suggestions. My opening slide shows Roaring Stag by a Lake, a well-known Danish genre painting. In Denmark, stag paintings, once ubiquitous, are still common. I saw my first one on a real estate brochure. The image seethes with proud but vulnerable masculine authority. It lures viewers to the chase. I will call that, that lure the dream of the stag, 
And while not the whole topic of my talk, it will be its guiding trope. I have two purposes for the dream of the stag, and I'll try and keep both going. First, I'll tell of real stags and hunters as these help me understand weedy landscapes. Coordinations across human and non-human projects, I will argue, make landscape assemblages coalesce. Weeds, which shout challenges to stability, show us transformations in which landscape assemblages come together and fall apart. Second, I'll speculate about the dream of the stag itself. It mesmerizes, I'll argue, causing viewers to focus on the wild enchantments of interior self-making. Interior wildness, in turn, makes landscape histories disappear. Landscape appear without history and with the completeness and coherence of a theater backdrop. This is no way to know landscapes, especially the weedy landscapes we share with red deer stags. But first, let me show you the dream of the stag in action. Follow me. Look over my shoulder, but please be quiet. I'm walking as silently as I can along a forest path. My companion is a hunter, a landowner, a financial genius in the Danish garment business. He's gained and lost more money in a few minutes than farmers make in several years. I'll call him the bull to mark his barrel chest, his aristocratic aspirations, and his continuing search not just for gain, but also for rising markets, the ones we call bold. As the evening approaches, we reach a hunting high seat and climb up. In Denmark, individual hunting is done from high seats so that a hunter can safely aim for ground at the end of his shot. American-style stalking is illegal. High seats must not have roofing or too comfortable seats. The bull and I perch precariously on a board and protected from view, peer over the side. We're looking onto a large grassy meadow surrounded by dense plantation groves of pine and spruce. The red deer hide in the forest during the day, but at dusk they come out to feed. Shooting is allowed only until sunset, so we have a short window of time. We peer anxiously into the evening. This time we don't have too long to wait. A hind peeks out from the forest, looks around, and leads her two companions into the meadow. One is another hind, the third is a young buck, perhaps two or three years old. It's late October, and the hinds are already pregnant. They've spread out without contest by the stags. Only this, I'm told, allows this young buck to hang out with hinds. They eat peacefully, too far away for a shot. Our watching, too, is relaxed and peaceful. Then an older hind enters from the other side of the open space. She's leading a large group of hinds and calves and a big stag with a rack of antlers. The bull is riveted, his grip ready as he stares at the stag through the side of his gun. It's much too far away to shoot, but that doesn't stop his fascination. The other riveted one is the young buck. He stares, he approaches with his head high. The stag looks up from eating, Buck is less than a third of his size, hardly a threat. The stag waves his antlers for a moment and then goes back to eating. But young Buck is mesmerized. He stands, he raises his head, he eases back a step, but then urges himself to step forward. And Bull, too, mesmerized. He does not want to shoot hinds and calves. It's the stag that draws him, or perhaps in both cases, the dream of the stag. I'm interested in these asymmetrical gazes. The stag does not look at either buck or bull, and bull, buck and bull do not look at each other. Each stares at the stag. What are they seeing and not seeing? And how does the entanglement of their respective non-entanglements shape the landscape? Both things interest me, their non-engagement with each other and the emergent landscape assemblage that's made possible despite that the coordination between these two non-meeting stairs, the unintentional work of the dream of the stag, is key to the weedy dynamics of this place. The presence of red deer here is already strange. Red deer were Ice Age residents in Jutland, but the Danish king succeeded in exterminating Jutland's red deer, except for a few in private game parks in the 18th century. Furthermore, Jutland has become more and more tame 
especially since 19th and 20th century industrial techniques allowed the conversion of moorland into modern farms. Other than road verges and hedgerows, one can hardly find a square meter of non-agro-industrial space. The trees are plantation crops, the soils are augmented with fertilizers. It takes an abandoned mind to host a scene of wildness. That's why the place is interesting for the oral research team. It turns out that many nature reserves and parks across northern Europe are abandoned mines or other sites of human-made ruin. But our field site is not a park. Red deer wandered in by themselves, along with an array of surprising guests, including invasive non-natives, such as raccoon dogs, as well as the deeply prohibited wild boar, and most recently, the scary and thrilling wolves. What a diverse menagerie to have assembled itself. I've been thinking of this kind of reassemblage as auto-rewilding. Rewilding refers to the placement of animals in human-disturbed landscapes, whether to aid ecosystem services or merely to enhance biodiversity. Auto-rewilding, then, would be the rewilding activities of animals themselves. And I might include plants and other organisms as auto-rewilders, too. Auto-rewilding is one of the most important processes for making our human-disturbed world. Without auto-rewilding, our disturbed landscapes would be thin and bare, devoid of organisms except those we put there. But auto-rewilding offers ambivalent futures. On the one hand, we owe the richness of our feral landscapes to auto-rewilding. On the other, auto-rewilders often kill the chances of other less aggressive and disturbance-loving species. Auto-rewilders are bold. They are weedy. Like us, they do not play well with others. They help us make the Anthropocene, the proposed epic of outsized human disturbance. We ought to know something about auto-rewilders, but Anthropocene scholars have been more interested in engineered human spaces than weeds. The problem is not the dream of a stag. In fact, it's something like its converse the lure of universal history, which denies the presence of diverse landscapes altogether. Geologists introduce the term Anthropocene. Global and universal time is their gift from the Enlightenment, and they're not about to give it up. Anthropologists might differ, since heterogeneity is our gift. For us, Anthropocene gains traction only when we combine time and space by making landscapes units of analysis. Besides, landscapes are necessary to see weedy configurations. I turn to landscape, then, as a tool that might revitalize Anthropocene discussions and bring us back to auto-rewilding. For most of the last 25 years, anthropologists have been wary of studying landscapes. This is because we followed cultural geographers into anxiety about one of the word landscapes genealogies, that genealogy that takes us into Dutch landscape painting the picturesque, and the reification of nature as an object of enlightenment vision. From the perspective of that genealogy, to study landscape is to flatten our perspectives to notice only the distant view. Alas, this put landscape's many other delights off limits. I'm grateful to geographer Kenneth Olvey for taking us beyond this impasse. Olvey argues that an earlier and more pertinent ge genealogy of landscape in Germanic Europe is that place in which political moots could be gathered to discuss things, that is, issues of importance. A landscape is a gathering in the making. I like this definition. It lends itself to many of the problems to which landscape studies can be addressed. Landscapes are simultaneously imaginative and material. They encompass physical geographies, phenomenologies, and cultural and political commitments. The definition can be extended, too, to encompass multi-species gatherings in the making. My landscapes are moots in which all kinds of living beings, and non-vital things, too, such as rocks and water, take part. They come together to negotiate collaborative survival, the who lives and who dies, and the who stays and who goes enactments of the landscape. They may not notice each other directly. They may ignore each other, like the buck and the bull but each declines or flourishes in the effects of the world-making projects initiated and maintained by the others. Landscapes, then, are gatherings of ways of being in the making. 
As ecologists argue, they're units of heterogeneity. A landscape can exist at any scale as long as it encompasses heterogeneous patches. There are landscapes on a leaf and on a continent. The so-called landscape scale of GIS is only one of many scales for landscapes worth exploring. And ways of being? Ways of being are historically shifting enactments. Species is relevant, but hardly fully determinate. A farmer and a financier have different human enactments. So too, a racehorse and a plow horse have different horse enactments. Rocks and water also have historically shifting ways of being. In landscape moots, ways of being emerge and shape what's possible for all the others. Landscapes are historical, and they allow us to think across a variety of scales from deep time to current events. Such shifting scales of time are the focus of discussion about the Anthropocene, a term that continues to be contested and is thus still open. How might we bring landscape into Anthropocene? In the next section, my challenge is to let landscape interrupt Anthropocene universal histories, both by taking those timelines seriously and by showing how they look different when used to peep at particular landscapes. Landscapes interrupt history. This allows me to come back later to let history interrupt landscapes, or at least the kind that arise in the spell of the stag. What are we to do with Anthropocene timelines? Timelines need not propose epical shifts. They can also offer points from which to watch for something new. Think of them, perhaps, like the hunting high seat. They're sites, moments, and events from which our awareness of landscape transformations might be heightened. Consider, for example, the key dates at play for the beginning of the Anthropocene. These dates are competing entries, but here I make them points for noticing landscape change. Archaeologists have suggested that the Anthropocene should begin 10,000 years ago with the very first plant and animal domestications. Geographers argue for 1610, a global CO2 drop that can be explained by the genocide of Native Americans by European-introduced diseases. Genocide encouraged forest regrowth in the New World, lowering global CO2 and perhaps explaining the latter half of the Little Ice Age in Europe. Climate scientists first promoted 1880s as the start date for the Anthropocene because of the Industrial Revolution. But now they've turned their attention to 1945, the first atom bomb, with its clear radioactive signature in sediments around the world and the great acceleration of human population and industrial disturbance. If these states are high seats from which to notice human innovations, they're also high seats from which to notice the making of new kinds of weeds. Consider the weediness each of the innovations noticed by Anthropocene scholars bring into the definition, oops, sorry, into the world. The domestication of plants and animals brings weeds of crops and livestock from rats to the plants that hide in the grain, as barley did in the wheat. There are weeds, too, of disturbed field edges, plants and animals that thrive with human disturbance. There are new diseases for humans and their domestic animals as pathogens pass back and forth in the crowded conditions of domestic life. Measles and smallpox are examples. These forms of weediness come into the world and stay with us. The European conquest of the New World offers a whole other catalog of weeds. I like historian Virginia Anderson's term, creatures of empire, by which she means the livestock brought by European settlers, which through their wandering, eating, and property status helped destroy Native Americans, human and non-human. But the term might be extended to consider the whole suite of species that travels with conquering humans. First, there are those I call shock troops, that is, those that help humans make the conquest. In the New World, European pathogens did that first work. Livestock followed them. But they're also what I, came, I think of as camp followers, the suite of intentionally and non-intentionally introduced organisms that made life more difficult for natives, human and not human. Think of starlings first introduced to the US to commemorate Shakespeare's birds, 
now spread across the continent displacing native birds. These are creatures of human invasions. The Industrial Revolution rationalized landscapes for capitalist asset making. Several kinds of weediness were born from this rationalization. Pests and pathogens, for example, proliferated and emerged in new, more virulent kinds from the crowded monocrops of rationalized farming. Chemical fertilizers allowed industrial farming to proliferate, and the massive use of fertilizer ran off into waterways, ruining them for fish and water plants. These are feral landscapes from inside agricultural rationalization. At its side, however, there were survivors, such as the remnant American prairie grasses described by historian William Cronin. These grasses came to live only on railroad verges where sparks lit fires and no one regulated the results. Weediness reaches to embrace both terrifying and hopeful ecologies. The post-World War II Great Acceleration has also been an acceleration of feral landscapes. Industrial capitalism moves to the most remote spots on Earth to use and then quickly abandon them as sites for asset production. Feral landscapes replace not just the last wilderness areas, but also the last peasant ecologies with their comparatively long-term accommodations between humans and non-humans. Meanwhile, toxins proliferate and slow degrading anthropogenic substances such as plastics scatter everywhere. Every feral landscape dynamic layers forms of weediness brought into being at varied historical moments. Take auto-rewilding. Auto-rewilders are disturbance-loving and disturbance-making. The weeds of crops and livestock are talented auto-rewilders. Auto-rewilders are weedy invaders, drawing agilities from both ancient and modern conquests. Auto-rewilders are survivors in non-rationalized edge spaces. An abandoned industrial site is an edge made large. Auto-rewilders make use of the acceleration of industrial use and abandonment. The numbing speed of capital's mobility makes auto-rewilding the best agility we have for survival, as well as a terrifying mess. By agilities, I mean ways of being that emerge from historical opportunities, where earlier thinkers imagined only mechanical repetition among non-humans, I'm looking for emerging talents. Auto-rewilders have lots. Even where auto-rewilders are blocked, they may be lying in wait to seize the time. Because of these layered agilities, the high seats I've identified for noticing weedy developments do not tell a historical story in themselves. Instead, they call out for stories of particular landscapes told at multiple time and space scales. In those stories, we can watch agilities, which, though they emerge from different times and places, assemble for a definitive effect in the friction of landscape. In the next section of my talk, I offer a thumbnail history of the Subyu ground coal beds, not the coal, which comes much earlier, but of human habitation since the end of the last ice age. Several kinds of auto-rewilding agilities have developed on this multiply disturbed anthropogenic landscape. I'll narrate three landscape assemblages, each of which condenses human and non-human histories in an emergent cohesion of the multi-species moot. The more, the mine, and the mess. Such histories are the Anthropocene in action, timelines interrupted by landscape. You're listening to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. We just heard the first part of Anna Singh's talk. What really stood out for me was Singh's push for us to find multiple entry points from which to explore the particularity of changing landscapes, and how through this we begin to interrogate or interrupt historical narratives and current narratives of global connection and global climate and environmental change. In the second part that we will now listen to, we will better get to know the landscape that we were invited to explore through the hunting session in the beginning of the talk. Singh takes us back some centuries to explore what this landscape was like before, and pay attention to the variety of human and non-human actors that have participated in shaping it. By taking this historical trip, it becomes clear how the landscape is taking shape and is continuously changing, 
by the participation of all these different actors that we will now hear about. During the last ice age, the Supu brown coal fields narrowly escaped being covered by glaciers. If you can find Denmark in this image, notice the sliver of western Denmark that somehow remained free of glaciers. Instead, however, it was completely covered with sand and gravel, glacial outwash, the result of glacial movement without being of the glacier. Humans moved north as the glaciers receded. I couldn't help uh, not put, putting this in this slide, an artist's imagination of that time, because it has the dream of the stag in the high middle of the picture, drawing the hunters on. As this slide shows too, trees followed the retreating glaciers, and not just birch, as shown here, but pine and lime and oak. Jutland is known for its comparatively late Neolithic, but eventually humans cut down those trees, and since they were growing on sandy glacial outwash, they took their time growing back. In their slowness, they were overtaken by another landscape assemblage, the moor. Humans did not engineer the moor, but they helped make it. As you can see from this painting, humans had companions in sheep and heather. This is a 19th century painting showing grazing intensification. For the earlier period, imagine it as a patch. What's missing here is fire, another participant in this gathering of ways of being. Without burning and grazing, the trees come back. The moor is a feral landscape of domestication, uh, gathering historical agilities of humans, sheep, heather, and fire. I'm not sure you can see it, but this painting also shows knitting, a long-standing livelihood activity of the peasants who lived on the moor and one that through the twists and turns of fiber led to the continuing importance of the textile and garment industry in central Jutland. Here then, my stories must enter the intertwined histories of textiles on the one hand and Jutland ecologies on the other. It's not fortuitous that my character Bull is a garment industry king. Changes in the organization of textile and garment production go a long way in shaping the varied weedy landscapes that have congealed in Subi. But let me take each Anthropocene dateline one by one. Back when peasants occupied the moor, every shepherd had his wool knitting, and knitted garments became not just a local specialty, but also an item of trade. By the 17th century, wool traders from central Jutland were selling their products in Copenhagen, and when Copenhagen traders complained, the king even gave them special licenses. 1610 is my second Anthropocene high seat to look out on weedy ecologies. What do we see? Despite advances in the wool trade, Jutland, including Subi, had become extraordinarily backward, caught in the mud, as it were. Scholars have paid considerable attention to the asymmetrical ecological effects of 16th and 17th century European conquests. Compared to Americans, Europeans were lucky the flow of invasive species at that time was going mainly the other way. However, consider the spread of European influence towards Asia. The whole point of funding exploration, both west and east, was to position European traders to get Indian cottons and Chinese silks without the mediation of Muslims, who Christian Europeans had learned to despise. In 1600 and 1602, respectively, the British and Dutch East India companies were formed with their gunboats and wealthy investors. By 1610, Europeans had a presence in the Asia trade. In 1664 alone, the British East India Company imported a million pieces of calico and chintz. The result in Jutland? Wool was no longer exciting to urban elites who could suddenly buy colorful cotton and silk. Jutland's moors dozed unmolested and mixed with oak scrub as European metropoles looked elsewhere for their riches. Slavery, colonialism, and the Industrial Revolution, the dynamic developments of Europe, came into being through the search for cotton, not wool. The sustainability of the moors' weedy ecology was a side effect of the trade in cotton and silk, which allowed wool production to molder in backwaters such as central Jutland. 
Only later would wool production be modernized. The Industrial Revolution is my next high seat, and indeed, Jutland was transformed in the mid-19th century. But it had a lot to do with a war. After Denmark lost its most fertile farmlands to Prussia, Danes dedicated themselves to the modernization of Jutland, saying, what was lost without will be gained within. Chemical fertilizers and machines that could break the Moore's iron pan made it possible to plant crops and tree plantations and to raise dairy cattle and pigs. But the area I'm discussing was saved from that. Sheep grazing remained and indeed intensified. A different modernization was at hand. Those wool merchants I mentioned with 17th century rights had been keeping up with the times. They introduced knitting machines and a putting out system for wool garments. Knitting scaled up, no longer left in the hands of individual peasants. Serious money could be made, enough to become capital. By the early 20th century, textile and garment entrepreneurs were importing cotton to add to their businesses. Note that Danish, like English, uses the French word entrepreneur to praise businessmen as those who make things happen. From the first, these garment and textile entrepreneurs were a close-knit group tied by kinship, marriage, and personal favors. They were also what we now call flexible. In other words, they moved capital around from one business sector to another. This is one way to understand why some invested in brown coal during World War II. The Dombod family had three notable brothers raised in textiles, Ahe, Maas, and Knut. When World War II came along, it was Knut who moved back and forth from brown coal mining at Subiu to textile production. He also continued to work closely with his textile industry brothers, starting a textile high school, among other things. Not all the investment in brown coal mining came from the regional textile and garment industry. Entrepreneurs arrived from all over Denmark. But the regional commitments of this industry have laid continuing sediments on the landscape, even in its disruptions. We have arrived at World War II, my next high seat for weedy landscapes. And what a time it was at Subiu, where everything was turned upside down in the most literal sense. The war had cut Denmark off from its British coal supplies. Some politicians tried to protect Danes from being conscripted into Germany. The poor Moor farmers were delighted to sell their land to entrepreneurs. The net result of this conjuncture was a make-work program of shoveling for one of the world's most inefficient and dirty fuels, brown coal. Great holes were dug and drained, sand piles and acid lakes were left behind. This is a good landscape to think about auto rewilding precisely because the former ecosystem was wiped out. Here's what the landscape looked like in 1970 when the mining was abandoned. Here's the same area in 2000. Not all of this forest is self-seeded, although some of it is. After 1958, brown coal companies were required to put funds in a landscape rehabilitation fund, and it was used for tree planting, particularly with fast-growing exotic conifers such as American lodgepole. Lodgepole turned out to be a great auto rewilder. It took off across the landscape, and now landowners battle unsuccessfully to cut it down. It also invited all kinds of animals, including red deer, who showed up for the first time in 1985. That brought hunters who bought up the land and fought against development, citing, citing the instability of the sand piles left by mining with their proneness to sudden collapse. With management for hunting, other animals moved in. Daring auto rewilders took over. Fed by the hunters, red deer proliferated like rabbits. But let me go back to the textile and garment industry for a moment. After the war, the industry rationalized and boomed. Then came the end of the Cold War. Former Soviet states became much cheaper places to make textiles and garments. Our entrepreneurs were ready with their flexibility. They outsourced all production and specialized in design and innovation and hauling in the capital. Business analysts think of them as great models. They have lots of money and lots of time. They invest in modern art and hunting. They push others out of their hunting grounds, thus encouraging the red deer. Red deer keep down the plants, making the landscape useless for farms or tree plantations. Together, 
hunters and red deer create a particular kind of weediness. I return then to the dream of the stag. The histories I've told help me read how the dream of the stag enchants at Subi. For the bull, hunting has something to do with playing with money. Each tests his mettle, each develops his drive. Hunting also draws government ministers and CEOs into his network. He invites them to his hunt, thus augmenting financial flexibility, another kind of freedom. As he explained, he isn't interested in shooting for meat. If he kills, he lets someone else do the butchering. Besides, the autumn stags he prefers are so rank that no one much wants to eat them. It's his confrontation with the great male, the perhaps the father, which is at stake. So too for the buck who looks at the father with the urge to fight. The buck, like the bull, is a historical figure, a bundle of congealed agilities in this moment of auto-rewilding. He stands there in preparation, is grooming himself to steal the herd and to inseminate the hinds. While the hinds can be said to lead the herd, they lead it for food and safety. The bucks, in contrast, are the masters of reproduction and expansion. In this protected zone, the landscape assemblage I've called the mess. There's room for lots of male pretension and fighting, more than in a stable ecology. Herds can spread and reproduce. Males search for new wild corners. Justice for the bull, for the buck, this is a historical time for ferocity and freedom. The dream of the stag thus asks as an axis of coordination between the projects of the buck and the bull. Without much notice between the two, they find themselves with overlapping projects of world-making. Through such overlaps, a landscape emerges. Lots of other organisms, as well as non-vital stuff, occupy this landscape. But every time even a small coordination emerges, a moment of friction, if you will, it has landscape-making effects. It gives the assemblage at least a momentary trajectory. The feral menagerie of the Subi brown coal fields from wolves to lodgepole pines owes a lot to this moment of coordination between the projects of red deer and financial entrepreneurs, the buck and the bull. All landscapes are made in such moments of friction. This is why we need both human and non-human histories to know them. The coordination between red deer and hunters encourages a particular kind of weedy landscape. It also blocks out others. This is the message of nature writer George Mumbayat's recent book, Feral, An Exploration of the Possibilities of Rewilding. Several chapters take readers to Scotland, an, ex an excellent analog for the central Jutland site I've been describing. Red deer hunters own huge tracts of land there, and red deer and hunters together encourage a certain kind of weediness. Indeed, or our team member Matilda Hoyrup's research has followed the central Jetland nex nexus there. One landowner is a central Jetland garment magnet, and he brings Jetland-style hunting to Scotland. Mumbaiat doesn't like the landscape of red deer and hunter landowners. He sees another weedy landscape waiting at the gates, excluded. If you fence off even a small area so that the deer can't get to it, he shows, a forest begins to emerge. Oaks and pines are auto-rewilders just waiting for a different set of coordinations to allow them to come back. Mumbaiat argues for the advantage of this set of weeds in the waiting. They encourage a much larger suite of animals. They restore some of the floral richness of the place. Every landscape coordination blocks out other coordinations. Every weed that takes over excludes others. This is a useful caution. Without calling it by name, Mumbaiat ties exclusion to the dream of the stag. He mentions the British painting, Monarch of the Glen, which shows a Scottish red deer stag with vague wild mountains behind him. The landscape cannot be the focus because the hunting coordination disallows it. Mumbaiat condemns the dream of the stag for blacking the richness of other coordinations. The dream of the stag is a form of self-absorption in which other enabling entanglements are forgotten. One coordination mesmerizes, other landscape assemblages disappear. What if we take this insight into theoretical territory? There's an irony here I want to probe. 
To be enchanted by the dream of the stag is to care about non-humans, but only to be caught in the erasure of landscape assemblage. How can our very best thinkers about multi-species relations yet return again and again to human exceptionalism and landscapes made entirely by human dreams and schemes? Perhaps one place to begin is with unrepentant human exceptionalism, the kind that explicitly excludes non-humans as outside the charmed circle of world-making. My reading of The Dream of the Stag makes me sympathetic to this stance, even as I disagree. Here, other humans take the place of the stag. The theorist is mesmerized by the dream of the human. In, thinking, in limiting focus to this one enchanting antagonist, then, other, entangle, other entanglements are erased. Human self-making, rather than multi-species coordination, takes over the analysis. The enhanced agilities of the viewer, caught in the dream of the human, block out the life world histories that make the dream possible. <coughs> From here, it seems easy to alight on philosopher Martin Heidegger, that astonishing thinker about language being and dwelling as agilities of humans. In his focus on the dream of the human, however, he excludes all others. And at least he has the courage to say so. Consider his famous claim that animals are poor in world. This statement would reduce my buck's gaze to instinct. As an animal to Heidegger, the buck only has its inherited sensory sphere. It cannot develop agilities or make worlds. Humans alone are world makers. Yet consider how this is a reflex of how Heidegger defines world, which for him requires language as logos, a particular human proclivity. If we defined world from a deer's proclivities, humans would be poor in world. Heidegger is focused on the human. The animal is collateral damage. But watch how this blocks the history of landscape assemblages. The animal is instinctive, that is mechanical. It has no history. For history to Heidegger is made in the meaning space of language. The animal is ahistorical because it does not live with language. Thus animals have no historical projects to coordinate with humans. The mise-en-scene of human life, the landscape, must be entirely human-made. Heidegger offers an exceptionally clear statement of the dream of the human which catches us in its enchantments, blinding us to others. Indeed, late in his life, he moved away from this stance, thus making his earlier position clearer. It's as if my buck was there. Heidegger shows us the gaze of a deer, albeit a deer in a poem. The lines between human and deer become blurred in the face of their common mortality. The dream of the deer, ironically, releases him from the dream of the human. From here, it's not too large a step to anthropologists working on alternative ontologies. Consider those with the strongest critiques of the West, that is, theorists of radically different ways to do worlds. I'm full of excitement and respect for this move, which has woken anthropology from a long doze. And yet, isn't it a branch of human exceptionalism? This might be a shocking claim. Lots of non-humans are key figures of concern, from jaguars to shamans' snuff bottles. Yet these non-humans do not have their own ontologies. They're brought into being by humans. Only humans have ontologies. Only humans make worlds. Only humans make landscapes. The major exception of which I'm aware is Eduardo Cohn, although even Cohn makes communication the sine qua non of being an almost Heideggerian move. I tend to agree that only humans have ontologies. Ontologies are philosophies of being, and it's not clear to me that any organisms other than humans bother with philosophy. Yet perhaps the situation changes when we consider Helen Varan's term, ontics. Ontics are not philosophies, but practices in which modes of being are enacted. Anyone can do ontics, whether or not they're interested in philosophy. A deer, a plant, a stone, all have ontics, even though they don't have ontologies. Furthermore, ontics are humbler than ontologies. They don't demand to take up all the space. Most thinkers about ontology divide the world in contrasts. There's ontology A and ontology B, and ne'er the twain shall meet. Ontics, in contrast, touch, overlap, 
work around each other, layer, and mutate in each other's presence. There are axes of coordination as well as refusals. Looking at landscape emergence is a matter of ontics. It's the coordination between the ontics of the bull and the buck, rather than their coherence in a single cosmology that offers a powerful trajectory to landscape history. Landscape assemblages arise in the juxtaposition of varied modes of making worlds. No single cosmology can order a landscape alone. So why has it been so easy to ignore this point? The dream of the stag, or the jaguar, or the west, enchants viewers to enhance their own agilities in the chase while neglecting the coordinations that make this possible. The landscape blurs, and the only non-humans that can be seen are those that occupy the space of the dream, the space of the chase. You might be thinking that I'm working towards a plug for natural science, but I'm not. When it comes to the dream of the stag, stories of science can be just as bad as stories of cosmology. Let me return to Mumbai's Pharaoh as exemplar. When I first read that book, I couldn't get to the ecological insights because I was so disturbed by the frame. The premise of the book is that rewilding begins in the heart of the self, and while masculinity is never mentioned directly, it's clear that that's what's intended. Rewilding, to mind by it, means putting oneself into dangerous situations on purpose in order to cultivate an imagined intimacy with wild animals and primitive people. By imagined here, I mean fantasized. Mumbaiat's intimacy with these others is limited by the fact that this is a project for building the self. It's the wild interiority of the masculine self that best promotes the feral, he tells us. This is not about relationships or coordinations, but about individuals who find their feral selves. As Mumbaiat puts it, describing how good it feels to carry a dead deer he found in the woods over his shoulders, civilization slips off one's shoulders like a bathrobe when is left with one's inner animal. Despite Mumbai's dislike of red deer hunting, this is the dream of the stag. Mumbai's immersion in multi-species landscapes is eclipsed by self-making, which erases other agendas. Again, the dream of the stag helps me be sympathetic, even as I disagree. It helps me put Mumbai's chase in the context of his antagonists, the ones he calls civilization. Consider the public intellectuals of Anthropocene discussion. A powerful gang has grown up to advocate the good Anthropocene, that is the one that can be controlled and exploited by familiar civilizational tools. I think of these voices as the inheriting sons of Anthropocene thought. They are the ones who use the master's tools to refurbish the master's house, the eco-modernists. <coughs> Their tools are capitalism, canonical philosophy, and elite technology. They tell us that these tools can fix what's broken in the environment. They don't worry about weeds. Like other social engineers before them, they tell us that nothing will go wrong with their plans. They don't care about the dream of the stag. They just want to inherit the property. In contrast to these guys, Mumbaiat is a rebellious son. Here he joins other rebellious, uh, he sees the problem of civilization. He develops his will to resist the mandate of the father. Here he joins other rebellious sons, heroes, pirates, loners. They immerse themselves in wild places to sop up their wildness. They hope that the sheer strength of their newly established selfhood will conquer civilization. Yet they're limited by the dream of the stag. They don't care to notice the entanglements and coordinations that take them there. It's hard not to imagine that they're just trying to escape from the wife and kids. If we want to take the Anthropocene seriously, even through description, we must do better than either of those two masculine alternatives, inheritors and rebels. The Anthropocene, I've argued, is an invitation to pay attention to weeds. So many of us are Anthropocene weeds. Weeds are creatures of disturbance. We make use of opportunities, climb over others, and form collaborations with those who allow us to proliferate. The key task is to figure out which kinds of weediness allow landscapes of more than human livability. 
This requires history at many scales. That's the Ora field site, an unremarkable ruined place in the boring center of Denmark. I've argued that any ruined place can provoke stories of weedy assemblage for the last 10,000 years or the last 10 years. Through attention to the coordinations that allow particular weedy assemblages, landscape can be a research object that shows us the heterogeneity of world-making projects. To watch the dream of the stag and yet attend to coordinations that hunters ignore, we need to make histories of landscape that involve all kinds of beings, human and not human. Thus, too, we can take up a central analytic challenge of thinking Anthropocene, how to combine landscape and history such that difference and possibility remain in sight. I know it's a form of insanity to throw so many kinds of different materials into the same presentation, but at least it should give you something to chew on. I would be honored and delighted if we could spend the next few minutes in a discussion about what varied approaches to landscape do. Please do not be shy. I want to hear your questions and comments, and even more, I want to engage with your ways of knowing landscape. Thank you for your attention. We wish to warmly thank Anat Singh for allowing us to publish and share her talk, and many thanks also to the Finnish Anthropological Society for kindly letting us record and publish it. For more examples of how anthropologists are grappling with the Anthropocene, check out Cultural Anthropology's Lexicon for an Anthropocene Yet Unseen. You can find the link to this collection of short essays in the show notes for this episode. We're currently looking for contributing editors. Are you a graduate student or a postdoc fellow? Interested in producing content for Colant.org like this podcast? Contributing editors, like Jenny and myself, help create online content like author interviews, blog-style posts, themed collections, podcast episodes, and more. Check out the show notes for this episode for details on how to apply. To find out more about the podcast, our curated collections, and all the other content produced by Cultural Anthropology, Check out our website, www.colanth.org. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. You can also find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and on Twitter at Cullanth. And you can email us at anthropod at cullanth.org. <laughs>